Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. So we are going to start a new series here on Matthew. And it looks a little, maybe a little different because we're not going to like walk through it exhaustively. We're not going to go through each chapter, each verse. Um, we're actually just breaking it up into four different sermons. So I get one and then uh, Gary and Kelly and Corbin also get one. Uh, Kelly and Corbin were gone this last week at youth camp. We're going to do some highlights next week about youth camp. Um, my son went. I just want to say those that volunteered and helped and were there, I really appreciate it. He's speaking to my son's life. Um, also, I want to mention, you know, for having a lead pastor that's like, I'll go to camp, I'll preach there. Like, to me, that's a big deal. If you've ever been to a camp before, it's exhausting. And so the older you get, it's like, ah, this is for the young people. And so... A lot of times when the pastors get out and do maybe some like youth ministry, like, oh, we'll just let the next generation do camp stuff. But he was like, I'm in. I'll be there. I'll preach. Um, so to have a lead pastor that do that, it means a lot to me. It means a lot, especially since he's spoken to my son's life. And so one thing that's going on with this Matthew series is that we're tying it to kind of reading the Bible together as a church. So if you are just new to you, just join us this week. There is a reading plan that's either online are there or is like a bookmark that's created that's on the reception desk, and you just can grab one of those and read along with us. Um, I love the idea as a church that we're reading the scriptures together. And also, every day, there is a devotional written by a staff member or somebody else from the church um, on that chapter. So maybe gives you some insight or a new way of thinking about it or just ask some good questions. Um, but it's this idea of like we're learning together as a church. And this is a great time of year to create a new rhythm of life. I know summertime, I get off track. I just go here and go there. Kids are doing this. Stuff's happening. Um, and so it's a great time of the year to like, okay, what do I want the rhythm of my life to look like? And so, and hopefully what you do is you add the rhythm of spending time with God and in God's word in part of your, your life. So if you're not a morning person, don't feel like you have to wake up early and spend time with the Lord. The Lord's still there. He's there 24-7. He's available. Um, so just do it at a time of day that you know that you can create. This is part of my schedule. This is part of what I do. And so join us along um, on the, the Facebook page, Instagram, wherever. If you have thoughts your own, we'd love to hear them. And so you can kind of join us with that. And so over the next, this week and the next three weeks, there's not really like a theme necessarily when it comes to like what we get to preach about. Um, we kind of get to choose what we want. I got like eight chapters I can kind of pick from. Um, and so I'm going to actually look at kind of the beginning of the ministry of Jesus and what that looks like. So one thing that's really important to me, uh, especially over the last about five years, 10 years, is trying to read the Bible within the context of those who first read it. So Matthew is a great idea of this because Matthew is probably the most Jewish gospel. So Matthew, who wrote it, also known in the other Gospels as Levi, uh, was, was Jewish. He was writing to his Jewish people, which is really interesting because Matthew was also, before uh, being called to be a disciple of Jesus, was a tax collector. And in that society, even like today, like, you know, tax collectors are not your favorite people. That time of year is not my favorite year. Talk about procrastinating. I'm like, can I just put this off as long as I can? Because I hate it. Um, but... So, but in that, especially in that society, in that Roman culture, so those that were Jewish were basically aligning themselves with the Romans, taking 
Jewish people's money to give to the Romans. And sometimes the tax collectors were not the greatest of character. And so they made their own living by taking, adding extra to that tax that the Jewish people owed to the Romans. And so you might have people that were definitely more honest, and I think Matthew was one, that would only take what he needed, where other people would just add on to it. They'd have a lavish lifestyle because they could just steal, basically, from the Jews. So when you talk about a Jewish person who's very in the law, wanting to do the right thing, you know, if you come from like a Pharisee or a zealot, um, someone looks at something like Matthew and goes, like, that is the wrong person. That person should never have become a disciple of God, should never have written the gospel, one of the Gospels. But this is who Jesus chose, this tax collector. And so in Matthew writing it to the Jewish people, he wrote it in a way that they would understand. So we bring things out that are maybe more Jewish. Uh, I believe Matthew quotes like the wisdom literatures and the uh, prophets t- t- twice, as many, uh, twice as many times as the other Gospels. So he does that, does that because the Jewish people knew the scripture. Part of the education of the Jewish system is that when you're younger, everybody went and they basically learned the first five books of the Bible, memorized it. Does anybody else have five books memorized? You know, first five? First chapter? First? First? I got the verse. Um, but they knew their word. And so especially when looking at it is that they're reading or listening to the Matthew gospel being presented is that they would pick up on things that were very Jewish. They pick up on things that are very text-oriented, that would drive their thought back to something else they already read in Scripture. So my hope today is I'll kind of pull some of those out. But also reading or being written to a Jewish audience, you get things like in the other Gospels, you hear Jesus talk about the kingdom of God. But in the Gospel of Matthew, you get the kingdom of heaven. And so there's been some, I'd say, incorrect teaching over a period of time of where they're like, oh, Matthew's talking about something else. No, no, Matthew's talking about the kingdom of God. But he uses the word heaven instead of God is because for Jewish people, they take the name of God seriously. They don't want to blaspheme it. So even if today, if you read something that's written by a Jew, a lot of times when they write the word God, they would like G underscore D. They don't write the whole name out. And so for that period of time, heaven was interchangeable with the word of God. So you say the word heaven instead of God because you don't want to take his name in vain. <clears throat> and so, but if we read it today in our own culture, we think of kingdom of heaven, that might give us an image of something that's out there, something that's away, something that's sometime in the distance, something that's not of this earth. But it's not true. So when you read the kingdom of heaven in Matthew, just in, in your head, you can go, oh, kingdom of God. Because when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, it's near, it's now. He's bringing something at this moment, not something future, not something when he comes back later on some other place, but now that impacts our life at this moment, at this time. So I'm going to read uh, Matthew, some of Matthew 3 and some of Matthew 4. And this is where initially, like, where Jesus' ministry starts. So earlier in Matthew, we get the genealogy of Jesus. Um, you could do many scriptures, messages about that itself. And then the birth of Jesus and walking through. And so, but this is the time when Jesus is about 30 that his ministry starts. And this also coincides exactly with what someone who become a rabbi about the same age would become, like, be known as a rabbi. 
Like they went through their schooling. So it's about 30 is about that time of life. So Jesus is starting his ministry at this point. So let's go ahead and read Matthew 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove. And coming to rest on him and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So if, when you hear this, if you were like putting yourself in mind of some of that like Jewish and like, okay, I've heard this story before. This is something that has popped up before. And if you actually heard my sermon maybe a couple months ago, I kind of brought the same idea up because I know you guys all remember that. I barely remember it. It's all good. Um, but, there, but you catch this idea of this, this pattern that you find. Like, okay, there's a pattern here that I've heard before. So it's a pattern of, say, there's something with water, there's something with the Spirit of God, and then there's something with God speaking. So we get this here at the very beginning of creation. Starts in creation. The Spirit of God hovered over the deep, over the water. And then God spoke. So they created. So we get this idea. Then we get it again with Noah. So the flood happened. There's something tragic that happened. And then you get the story of Noah, where there's a body of water. There's a lot of it. And then God spoke, and then the water descended. The same story of Israelites leaving Egypt, coming to the Exodus. When they were crossing over... Um, Red Sea, thank you. And when we were crossing over the Red Sea, uh, the Spirit of God went over and separated the waters, the wind... Raha came over the waters. And then even what we've been talking about in the story of Joseph, um, that when they crossed the Jordan, they took the God, Spirit of God in the ark over and the sea parted and God spoke. So we get this rhythm over and over again that Spirit of God hovered over some body of water and God spoke, and there's supposed to be something new happening. With creation, there's a new creation, it was God's creation that happened. With the flood, God was doing something new after that. The Israelites, they're leaving slavery and into something new. The story with the, the Jordan, the Israelites are going over the Jordan into the promised land, leaving the desert into something new. And so as someone would read this story, that, okay, what is happening here? What is God doing? Is there, there has to be something new coming. So what is this something new that's happening? And one thing I want to pull out also in this passage is when you're talking about the idea that Jesus spoke new teachings, he shared something new out of scripture, it was very actually uncommon for the rabbis to teach something new. So only certain rabbis were giving, given this idea of having authority. So as the educational system worked, basically you started off young, and so those that seemed to have like a catch-on, that were maybe more intelligent, um, that were seen to have promise, 
then they kind of moved up in the educational system. And so then they would start memorizing other books of the Bible. And ideally, if they went through all the way through, they'd memorize all of the Old Testament. And then from there, they would go and find themselves a rabbi. They'd become a disciple. So rabbi just means master. They'd go find themselves a teacher. And they'd find a teacher that says, oh, they got some sort of promise. And then they would learn what the teacher learned. They want to be just like that rabbi, exactly like them. They'd follow them around and learn, and then they would teach what they taught. But then there are certain rabbis that would give this idea of giving authority. So the question to a Jew would be, who gave Jesus the authority? Someone had to give Jesus the authority to teach these new teachings. If you read through like the next couple of chapters, you read through when Jesus teaches, like, you have heard it said. You have heard it said, and then Jesus shares something. Because you've heard it said one way, and Jesus is teaching something new. And so in that passage in Matthew 3, that God spoke, and this is my son. If you want to have authority, and Matthew's pointing to like who that Jesus got this ability to teach from, to teach new, authority came from the Father. I don't think there's anything better authority that you can get from getting God's saying, hey, this is my son. I'm the one that gives him authority. And so in this rhythm that we have, or this pattern, we have this, the water, the spirit over the water, Jesus, our God spoke. But in all these other places in scripture that pops up, what we have next is this idea of temptation or trial or testing that happens. We get that back in the creation story with Adam and Eve, so they're created in the garden. Adam needs some animals. And then there's a testing with the apple. We get this also with the story of Noah. So after the flood happens, there's this story that happens between Noah's nakedness and his sons. There's some sort of testing, something that happened there. We get it with the Israelites crossing over uh, the Red Sea into the, the desert. We get this idea of a testing that happened, either that when they like when there's no water or food, or Moses was up on the mountain too long, and they're like, mm, "Do we trust God? Or are we going to create our own God?" We see it even with idea when the Promised Land, after Jericho. Uh, this is a story that Corbin did a, a few weeks ago with Akan, that he didn't trust God, that he was tempted to take belongings, to take what he wasn't supposed to take. So there, through this rhythm is a story, we get this idea, okay, there's a testing that always happened after God spoke, after there's something new, a new creation that happened. And humanity has always failed. Like, they didn't succeed here. They're supposed to be God's people. They're supposed to be able to trust God. And they failed here. And so if you were to think, okay, there's a story happening in Matthew 3, with the baptism of Jesus... So what would naturally be next? Temptation. So here, Matthew 4. Let me go ahead and read Matthew 4 here. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him 
to the holy city and set him up on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, in their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I think it's also important to note in the story, there was just Jesus and the devil. There's no other witnesses to the story. So somehow this story was important enough to Jesus to share to his, probably his disciples or maybe what he taught from. There's always this question in some ways of, did Jesus always know what his mission was? So as a, like a two-year-old, did Jesus know that he was a son of God and that he was going to go and then, you know, go to the cross and be crucified? There's a lot of conversation around that. But I think in any way how that plays out, we have this point that even the devil himself was like, okay, what does it really mean, Jesus, are, are you actually the son of God? The devil can question that Jesus is the son of God. And what does it look like how Jesus responds? Does Jesus know who he is? Does he know how to move forward? Because the pattern has always been that Jesus has, or God has chose someone, and once they were tested, they failed. They did not trust the story. Somehow they did not trust what God had. I like to look, um, if you even read the beginning of Matthew, Matthew sets it up in an order of where it almost represents the Israelites coming out of Exodus, the, the early story of Israel. Like it's kind of a repeat of that. And there's this extra Jewish writing about when the Israelites were in the desert and when they had, didn't have food or they didn't have water, that the devil showed up there and were making, or encouraging them basically to complain and to whine and not trust God. I, that's actually some extra Jewish writings that go there. So if you think you're Jewish, and you're like, I've heard this story. Like there's this point when someone's hungry, they needed food, and the devil shows up to tempt. How is this going to play out? And for us, what it really means for us, how Jesus walked through this. So Hugh in here has been tempted before. Uh, all your hands ought to be raised. And he has given into temptation before. All of us. So we all start at the same place. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all even here. So make sure we establish that, myself included, many times. And so um, and what I want to mention here, the word tempted in Greek, uh, it doesn't always translate the greatest with our English word of temptation because you can use this word in Greek, you'd also say, I tempted someone to do good. Like, how often do you like, oh, I tempted you to be the best person ever. Like, we don't use that language with the word tempted. Tempted always, for the English language, has a negative connotation. I think there's a better place in the scripture that talk about what tribulation or temptation or testing, kind of difference of what they might look like. But for this passage in the word Matthew used in Greek, testing our temptation kind of goes hand in hand here. So I'll kind of go back and forth between the words. Um, just kind of see how it fits. But I just want to make sure, like, like it's not, it's, 
it's the Greek word kind of gives lenience to both sides. That in some ways, this idea of like faith is tested. And so in Jesus, like it was this faith tested, the devil shows up and tests Jesus' faith and who he was. And so the first test here, what does the devil try to do? Like, oh, you're hungry. I was thinking about this earlier. I'm like, okay, if I walked up to Jesus and the devil, what's the devil look like a normal person? And the guy was like, yeah, you look hungry. I know you can turn bread, uh, stone into bread. I'd be like, you should do that. Like, that'd be good. You look hungry. You can turn stone into bread. You should do that. I would not be the best encouragement to Jesus at that time. But what is the devil trying to tempt here? So I like to look at it as almost idea of desire. Do we allow the desires of what we want, our physical wants, our physical needs, to be placed ahead of what God says? And this, it'll hear me here, this is where I want to make sure, like, I think this is where the church has got it wrong many times, is when we look at the idea of like, our own maybe wants and needs, we have a negative connotation to them. Like, you were created in the image of God. Like, God created your body. Like, there's desires that come out of it because God put them there. We don't need to be shameful of them. We just need to put them in the right order or not to twist them. Like, don't be shameful for, like, sometimes what you want. Just, like, hey, is it time? Is it ready yet for me to feel this way or think this way? Is it following God's word? Like, put them in the right order. But you don't need to feel shame over it. So maybe we can do this. We'll look back at the first temptation that happened. So here, let's read Genesis 2. 2, 2.9. So out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So basically in Hebrew, how this passage is kind of the imagery of it, would be in the middle of the garden, God created the tree of life. That's the middle of the garden. And then we also have this other tree that was created too, knowledge of good and evil. But in the middle of the garden is the tree of life. That's where God pointed to. Everything in the garden, in the middle of it is the tree of life. But then here in Genesis 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, and the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Look at the tempter kind of twisting God's words. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. The word midst means middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So when God spoke, what did he put in the middle of the garden? What tree? tree of life. When Eve looks at it, what tree is in the middle of her garden? Tree of knowledge and good and evil, the one that she couldn't, she says she couldn't touch, God never even said that, the one that she couldn't eat from. When our desires, they start to pull us away from what is true, what is good, they start taking our eyes off what God has, and starts to move them in a different direction. Sometimes it's like little things. It's like, okay, that's not really that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. But when sin enters and the desire takes over, 
and is going to try to claim more and more and more. Was it wrong for Jesus to be hungry? No. Was it wrong for him to eat? No. It wasn't wrong because the devil is the one that tempted him, like, this is what you should do. You should listen to me. You should listen to what the evil says here and not listen to what God wants. But Jesus trusts the story. That he trusts that God had the right thing for him. Even if he was hungry, even if his body was starving, if even he didn't feel good at that moment, just trusted the story of God here. I think it really speaks to like now. Because I mean, you've probably heard it before, like just follow your feelings. Whatever you feel is the right thing. Heck no, please don't. <laughs> like, I think sometimes like our society can do well and help make sure we shape desires in a certain way. Like the idea of like murdering is not good. So if you're angry at someone and want to kill them, you probably should choose not to. Like we have laws set up to like help you not go that direction. But just because we feel something doesn't mean it's who we are. You don't have to listen to it. In the story in the garden, like with a serpent, we get this idea of like he's an animal there. In a way, what do you know about animals? Animals just follow their instinct. If they see something they want, they go after it. If they see food, they eat it. We were created in the image of God. When we see something that we want, we don't have to chase after it. And where I think sometimes we look at the story with the serpent in there, the serpent doesn't understand that. He's like, well, if God wants you to have this desire, it must be good. If, he wants, if you see the apple and you see, ooh, that looks good, then you, as an animal, would be like, well, you should go eat it. But that's not who we are. Our life has more meaning, has more purpose, that you have a better story that's not just living day to day to follow your desire. I look at it as like a dopamine fix. So like dopamine is that drug in your brain that helps you feel pleasure. So a lot of times in your life, if you don't, like your brain doesn't feel normal, if you don't feel good, your body wants to have a dopamine fix. Like, so for simple, and my kids are here, they'll throw me under the bus because um, I do the same thing all the time. But like, let's say you're going up, you're standing in line, and you feel awkward because you're standing in line by yourself. What do you do? Grab your phone, pull your phone out. You're like, oh. You know, that's like a little dopamine fix. Like, oh, I feel better. I feel okay. Like, we chase that feeling all the time in our society. Because you shouldn't feel uncomfortable. You shouldn't feel bad. You shouldn't feel whatever that might be. But that's just as if you just follow your desire. Like I said, your life has more meaning than just following the next dopamine fix. God wants more for you, and it can mean that life does not feel great. If we want to be like Jesus and follow the path of Jesus, his life had hardship, but it had meaning and purpose. And I think that's where we get lost all the time, is like, well, if we just follow what is good, down the road, I will just feel better about my life. And that's such a lie. Because the more we just keep following what is good, we keep chasing, or we follow what is, feel, makes us feel good, we'll keep chasing what makes us feel good. And we'll keep chasing it, and chasing it, and chasing it. And a lot of times it'll lead us down to a path of destruction. Because I just need my next fix. 
where God says, like, hey, you don't need that. Yeah, this is going to be hard, but there's meaning into it, meaning in it. I think for us, like as people, that's how we created for life to actually have meaning. Maybe just look at your own life for a moment and go, okay, where have I given up meaning in my life just to feel good for this moment? What does that feel good look like? What does it look like for me to start changing that? Maybe it's just acknowledging that, like, yeah, right now in the middle of my garden, this is what's become most important to me. Maybe I need to start changing that, start changing my view, my eyesight towards what is good. Maybe I should need some help. Maybe you need some people around you that can encourage you in the right direction. You're not supposed to do this alone. Like I raised your hands before, you've all been tempted and you've all fallen short. We're all there. Just don't stay there. There are people here that can love you, that Christ loves you in the midst of that. And what I love about the whole piece of this temptation story is Christ is the one that created a new creation. Like he created something new that we get to be a part of, where yes, we do fall into temptation ourselves. But we have a God that came to this world, died for us, died for our sins, and we don't need to live under the condemnation of our own sin. We can be free from it. So in this first test, Satan uses desire. And so this next test that comes up, which has always been one that I've always kind of struggled with, I'm like, yeah, it's not that much of a temptation to toss yourself off of a temple. Like, I don't, I'm not really tempted with that very often. Like, at a high place, I'm like, oh, just jump off. Like, like so what is being, like, spoken here? I've come actually to believe this is probably what I would consider one of the biggest lies a church has accepted. Because what Satan does in this verse is that he takes scripture and changes it a little bit. Almost like what the servant did in the garden. Just changes a little bit. Did God really say this? So the, what Satan or the devil is quoting is a passage out of Psalms. It's a psalm about trusting the Lord when things are difficult, when things are hard, that you can trust in God. It sounds, it's, it's good. The psalm is good. But what the devil does is he skews it and says, well, Jesus... If God is really for you, like, he's, like you're in the midst of this hard time, you just fasted 40, won't he take care of you? Like you should be able to throw yourself off and he should be able to take care of you. How I like to look at it maybe in my own terms is we turn God into a vending machine. When I have a need or want in my life, I go to God, pick what I want, you better follow through with it so I get what I need. To follow Christ does not mean our lives are going to go well. It doesn't mean that they're going to go easy. And the lie that we can be brought into is, well, that must mean that something's wrong, that either you're not good enough, or God doesn't care about you. When the Israelites went into the desert, God put them there, even though they didn't have water yet, or food yet, What was he hoping they would do? 
to trust him. In the midst of whatever they're going through, to be able to trust him. To be able to look at your own life and go, okay, do I really feel that for me to be able to trust God, it means that he has to do everything for me? That puts us in the wrong place. That'd be like Jesus saying he's more important than God in this way. As a son of God, like he's more important than the Father. As Jesus came onto the world, he put himself underneath the Father. So whatever the Father wants, that's what he wants. So be able to say, like, whatever's going in my life, and it's all, not all this temptation. It's all not just trials we go through. Like, my internet went out in my house the other day, and my five-year-old was freaking out. Like, it wasn't a test. Maybe I should test it more often there, try to help correct that a little bit in his life. But there's things that do happen in our life. Like, you know, those that are younger, someday you'll get out of bed and you'll be sore. The next morning, you're like, what did I do? No, you just got out of bed. All you did was sleep. Like, your body hurts. And there's things in our life, like, there's, there's going to be problems. And I think of, like, the idea of death in our lives. That we have people in our lives, our parents, our grandparents, people that we love. This aspect of life, like, hard things are going to happen. And, and maybe it's my generation, and maybe before or after, I'm not quite sure. But there's almost this promise of like, well, if you just do all the right things, if you follow God just the the right way, life will always get better and better and better. And so when we walked away from that in some ways, like my generation, it seemed like, was like, well, no, why are all these hard things happening? There must be something wrong. So what's wrong? Either I'm wrong or there's no God. But that's not... It's like, that's the, that's the lie there. That in the midst of you even having hard things, difficult things in your life, that it still is a God you can trust. You might not understand it. You might not exactly know what God is doing sometimes. We were talking about a little bit of obedience. And Liz Hardwood mentioned that in life, in life, God has always been firm on what he's been told. He doesn't always give the answers but firm on like, what she should do. But like, we love the other part of it. Please give us the answers along with it. I'll be firm with it. I will do it as long as you give me the reasons why and how it looks and the side effects from it and what the next step of my life looks like and on and on and on. But can we put ourselves under the lordship of God? Can Christ be our king? That we can say, we can trust you. In the midst of whatever's going on, I can lean into you. I can follow you. And you know, it's easy words for me to say. I look back in the moments of my life, and there were seasons in my life like, I, God, I have a hard time trusting you in this. I am not sure what you have going on here. I'm wrestling with it. And we can wrestle with it. But at the end of the day, do we acknowledge who God is in our life? Because the devil wants to pull it out and say, no, you don't have to. Like, test God. If he's real, he'll show up in the way that you want him to show up. Or he's not real then. So, test two is the devil taking something of scripture and skewing it, making us doubt. 
But Jesus responded with scripture. And put himself in the right place underneath the lordship of his God. So we have test three. So with test three, that the devil no longer uses scripture, or desire, he please comes out and says, like, I will give you power. It's also a weird thought the devil has something to do with the ability to give Jesus power over earthly kingdoms. Let's throw it out there to you. You know, what does that mean? But so what is the question here? We already know Jesus is the son of God, that he's king, he has authority. So what is the devil trying to tempt him with? I think it's the how. How that Jesus was actually supposed to fulfill him being the son of God. How that was supposed to happen. Because it would be much easier if Jesus just came and took over the, king, the, the, the kingdoms of the world and ruled above them. Because he could have, right? Made things in order. And even in our own minds, that seems to make sense. There were Jewish people at that time, especially the zealots, that felt the same way. Well, if the Messiah came back and became our king in a worldly sense, like he would just take care of everything. But that's not the how that God gave Jesus. Not coming as a king, but as a servant. That Jesus continues to place himself under authority. And he came and served us, died for us. Like the idea of washing the disciples' feet. He came underneath people and has turned everything upside down. For myself in the place of Jesus, I'm not much whether it's much easier in some ways to be able to like, oh, let's take care of the worldly kingdoms. This other way is harder. Because a lot of times what? We choose power. You tell people like, this is the right way that you should be. This is how you're going to do it if you want whatever it might be. So how do we come underneath people like Jesus did? How do we not believe the lie of the devil and just take power on ourselves? How do we follow the path of Jesus? Come underneath him. So here's kind of where I want to end this morning. Like I said before, we've all fallen short. And we're going to face the lies into our own life. And how I look at, like to look at this is like, we face so many thoughts. If you're going to follow Christ, in some ways it's a lot harder in your own brain because you have a war going on. Who are you going to follow? And I think some of us like, suffer with the thoughts of, I'm not good enough. I don't have meaning in my life. I don't have purpose. I've always fallen short. There is a battle going on inside your head. What is the truth you're going to start believing? Because Jesus came and created a new creation. There was something new that happened. That you can have life. That you can have freedom. That the thoughts about yourself is not caught into slavery. That you need to start battling those thoughts don't believe what your mind comes up with or the lies are there. 
or what voices are speaking to you. Listen for the right voice. Not the voice is speaking lies, but the voice is speaking truth. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.